Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, I love Palm Sunday. And I love the Palm Sunday sermon, usually not for the part you would expect, for, but for what actually happens on Monday. I've entitled our message today, Broken. The anger of God in the scriptures is actually a very fascinating study. And it's not unusual to read about it, especially in the Old Testament. You see some of these events that take place. God is angry. There's some sort of punishment that takes place on his people or on other people's. And it always seems to be, you know, God seems to be a little bit distant. This anger's emanating from heaven, sort of a distant, seemingly impersonal force or being. In fact, theologians have a tendency to minimize, in my opinion, God's anger when they refer to it as an anthropopathism. All right, so I'm gonna teach you a couple words. You can just forget about them after the service, but this is actually not an insignificant detail. An anthropomorphism ascribes human attributes to God. That's an anthropomorphism, like the arms of the Lord. Well, we don't necessarily think of the Lord as having arms, but the arms of the Lord, that's an anthropomorphism. An anthropopathism is when God expresses a human emotion. So it's our way of understanding God. So the anger of the Lord is called an anthropopathism. And it's a way that we can relate to God and understand God. And biblical authors use this human emotion language on a regular basis, and scholars say, well, that's so that we can relate to God. He has these emotions, but they're really just human emotions. But here's the problem, in my opinion. It tends to minimize its reality. It's like saying, he's not really angry, but that's just the word that we use to describe how he feels so we can understand him. And I I think that's faulty theology. I believe we've done God a bit of a disservice by explaining away his emotions. And my proof is this, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in Christian theology. If you're here, you either believe Jesus is the son of God or you're open to the idea or there are better things to do this weekend in Calgary. Although the weather's pretty bad, right? This is like perfect church weather for pastors. We pray for this weather. Nobody's gonna enjoy camping. Nobody's gonna enjoy being outside. May it be really nasty, Lord, but not snow and ice so they can make it to church safely. I love this weather. Just, that was free. So Jesus is God in Christian theology. So when he walked this earth, He expressed human emotions as a human because he's also human. He's God in human flesh. That's the incarnation. So you've got Jesus is divine, he's God, but he's also walking in human flesh. There's no way to explain away his emotions anymore. They're not anthropopathisms. He's an anthro. He's one of us. So the New Testament needs no anthropopathisms. God was here. His actions and emotions are recorded by eyewitnesses. His emotions don't need to be overanalyzed and reframed by a rarely used theological term so we can relate to God. Jesus was God in human form right in front of us. Now there's a two-day stretch in Jesus' life 
One of the days in particular, but I think it's, it's steaming on Sunday, it happens on Monday, where Jesus expresses significant anger. And I believe that his anger betrays a value that was being violated in his life and in the culture around him. The core essence of his ministry was being undermined and Jesus was having none of it. We're gonna read the Palm Sunday story, including the aftermath of that. It's on page 36 in the Bibles near you, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 11. If you don't have one, page 36. Get about three quarters of the way through the Bible in the pew. The New Testament will start with page one, and this is Mark chapter 11 on page 36, beginning in verse one. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage, which means house of figs, and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it. He sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road. Others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples are listening. They came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Just two points in this story, one related to the first story, one related to the second story, which Mark puts together for a reason. First, and what Palm Sunday is about, salvation, a savior has arrived. So the passage we read is basically Palm Sunday plus Monday. Palm Sunday is a historic event. Prophecies going back thousands of years were fulfilled that day that Jesus, that a savior would come into this world, that he would be a Messiah. Prophecies about him go back to Genesis chapter three, the third page in your Bible, says that he would be from the seed of a woman only, exclusively. It's a hint at the virgin birth on the third page of your Bible as soon as sin has entered into the world. Genesis 12, 15, Genesis 15, God says that this, this Messiah, this, this savior who will bless all nations is gonna be Jewish. It's gonna come from the line of Abraham. 
Eventually in 2 Samuel 7, it'll be through the line of David. It's gonna be a king through the Davidic line. Eventually, Isaiah 53, you have very specific prophecies that this Messiah, this king, is going to actually die on a cross. Zechariah 9.9, this king would announce himself as king by riding into the capital city on an unbroken colt or foal. Now these are just a few of hundreds. In fact, some say there's 450 some prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament that were fulfilled. So this, these are a few of hundreds of prophecies. But that last one was the focus on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. It's Passover week, Jesus chose the greatest stage. It's one of the famous Jewish festivals, lasted a week. And about two and a half million people would be in and around Jerusalem that week. Now when you see these stories of Jesus and you see them put to film, even the ones that are trying to accurately reflect the New Testament, didn't hire enough actors for the crowds. You know, you see Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday, there's three or four kids, you know, you got some church's nursery department or toddler department, you know, and a few preschoolers waving palm fronds and, you know, a few disciples running along the way, a few Pharisees in the crowd, they maybe got a cast of 50. That is completely inaccurate. Well-intentioned, but underwhelming. There were two and a half million pilgrims in and around Passover, and Jerusalem was not that huge of a city. And what's going on here is they did a census. Now, here's how we know that. They did a census not long after Jesus' death of how many lambs were sacrificed in the temple during that week. 250,000. And the Passover meal required a minimum of 10 people to eat it together. 250,000 times 10, I wasn't a math major, but I can do that, 2.5 million. 2.5 million pilgrims. Hundreds of thousands had heard from, of Jesus, especially those from Galilee, where much of his ministry had taken place. Many had wondered who this miracle worker really was, often before he was really willing to admit it. He's only recently admitted that he's the Messiah, or King, and the Son of God. He couldn't admit to being Messiah much earlier because it would create a political revolt and Rome would have gone after him. He might have been off message had he done that. Only recently had his own disciples realized and believed that he was God. But this day, on this day, he owned his identity as Israel's king. On this day, he sent his disciples to get this unbroken colt. And to me, this is basically a mini miracle. To me, Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature here. I think there's a reason he's asked to go get this unbroken colt. Because unbroken animals don't cooperate. In fact, I've got a story to share about even broken ones that don't cooperate. I remember when I was a kid, I loved horses. And we weren't around horses, but we'd go to Christian family camp. And uh, we went to Christian family camp, and there was a horse lady there. I forget what her name was, but she was the horse lady. She was this young woman, probably in her 20s, maybe 30, and she took care of all the horses, and every afternoon when we didn't have you know, the sessions that you went to at Christian camp, I would go and ride horses, and I just loved it. But as an adult, I wasn't really around horses, so we went to a friend of mine's house who had a small little acreage, and they had a horse named Dudley. And we brought our dog there, who was a golden retriever, and not like the nice golden retrievers that lay on the couch and let you pet them. This was an evil golden retriever. I called him Lucifer. Lucifer eventually lost a leg chasing a car and getting run over. So then we had a three-legged golden retriever who was just a little better behaved. So if we're there, our families are there, Lucifer is there. 
and I was offered a horse ride. And I got to, next to this horse, and this was not like a nice little horse that you see out on the prairies of Alberta. Think the Budweiser horses that you see at Christmas. Big feet, big horse. This was a monstrous horse. And so I got on Dudley. Lucifer, for some reason, didn't like Dudley and is barking at Dudley. And Dudley's getting a little frustrated, and so Dudley begins to run. Now, I can handle a running horse as long as somebody put on the saddle correctly. (laughs) The saddle began to go sideways on the horse. And gravity works at my size. And I was imagining that not long after that, I was going to be underneath Dudley and these giant hoofs. I saw concrete slabs from old buildings that were no longer existed on that farmyard right in front of my eyes. My life flashed before my eyes. My birth, the birth of my children, my wedding day. In a matter of self-preservation, I dove off of Dudley as he was running. So when Jesus says, get me an unbroken colt, to me he's exercising authority and power over nature. It fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. In fact, this is Zechariah 9.9, one of the later, one of the last prophecies about what would take place when Jesus came. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They need to be broken. This was not broken. It was Jesus exercising his authority. He gets on this unbroken colt, the parade began. Parts of the two and a half million pilgrims who would be around there that week who've been coming in from other regions and he's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now he's already at Bethany, about two miles out of Jerusalem. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's on that main road. Is filled with pilgrims coming from Galilee and those from Galilee knew him. Those from Judea had just witnessed the Lazarus miracle a couple of months before, which had taken place in Bethany. He's probably staying overnight at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home in Bethany. He's coming from their home most likely. Passover naturally created nationalist feelings. As the pilgrims would come into Jerusalem, they weren't just all walking along the road checking their iPhones. They were reciting the Psalms. Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us now. Mark 11 says he's quoting, they're quoting Psalm 118, which was an expectation of deliverance. So as these uh, Jews would come into Jerusalem, or these Hebrews would come into Jerusalem during their Passover parade, they're literally asking God to restore their nation, to bring their Messiah. And now they're recognizing in Jesus, as he mounts that foal, that colt, that he's claiming to be that Messiah. By the time it hits Jerusalem, it is a massive movement of pilgrims. To the point that, one gospel writer said, all the city was stirred. The capital city was stirred. What just happened? What's going on over there by the temple? We hear this parade coming into town. It's not Passover yet. Who is this? They asked. By now it should have been clear. This parade had been forming since the sin of Adam and Eve. Salvation has arrived. All of salvation history looked forward to this. Second point, and the next story shows, salvation or a savior is wasted. The parade entered the temple. He said, what do you mean wasted, Paul? 
Because so much more should have happened historically than did happen. The parade ended at the temple. Jesus had business there, but it was late, so he goes back to Bethany. He's likely staying again at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. And the next day is extremely un-Jesus-like. They're on their trip back to the temple. It's morning. Jesus gets hungry. He sees a fig tree in the distance. He gets off of the road. He approaches the fig tree. It's full of leaves. Springtime. So the leaves are out. Maybe there's some buds. He's feeling behind the leaves for fruit. There's nothing there. And that not, should not have been a surprise to Jesus. He's kind of an earthy guy. He's a carpenter. He's not a farmer. But a lot of his illustrations were farming illustrations. He's in an ag economy. He's kind of a hands-on kind of guy. He knew it wasn't the season for figs. Mark says it's not the season for figs. Of course he knew. But Jesus, as he's feeling in this fig tree for fruit and finds nothing, he curses it. And the disciples are listening. It's like, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And I'm assuming he gives it the pointy finger, but I could be wrong. And when you read this, it's like, you know, we want to give Jesus a break because he's God's son, and we have to say he's sinless, but you got to ask the question, rough night, uh, low blood sugar, um, you know, what can he do that's acceptable without sinning? Still frustrated by the 12 and that little thing we had going on last week where they want to sit on your right hand or your left hand and mama comes to ask, I mean, what's going on here? Hold that thought. They continue to the temple. Now, God's plan in the Old Testament, so Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, was to elevate Israel as a nation on the world stage. Almost all the Old Testament is Jewish because it's about Israel and God's place for them in his kingdom. The idea is that Israel would obey God, and when they obeyed God, they kept the covenant in Deuteronomy Exodus repeated in Deuteronomy, this covenant between God and them, when they obeyed that, they would experience supernatural blessing. They'd be able to occupy their land, win their wars, they'd be successful in defending this territory. They would have influence on the world between these three continents and all the major trade routes. And they would be, as a result of that, a light to the Gentiles. And I quote the Old Testament, a light to the Gentiles. The world would see them. They would understand that they have a supernatural God protecting them. Now, the temple was the epicenter of that light to the world. Solomon had originally built the temple. That was eventually destroyed. It's being rebuilt by Herod in the time of Jesus. But historically, world leaders came to Jerusalem to learn about Israel and her God. You read about Solomon talking to world leaders, the Queen of Sheba coming and, and learning about God, and others would come and learn about the true God. Now that was destroyed when Israel went in captivity, or later I should say. This temple's been rebuilt by Herod. Now there's two words for temple in the scriptures. There's the word hiron, which means the temple area, sort of like a Think of a giant park-like system with columns and roofs and kind of outdoors. That was 30 acres of temple area. 30 acres. That's a big area. And then there was the naos. That's the temple building, like a small building in that 30 acres. It was a beautiful work of architecture. It's like one of the wonders of the world. Jesus enters the temple area, the high run, and he's not happy. 
It had four major courtyards. From the outside in, from the outside, this hieron towards the naos, towards the building, you have the court of the Gentiles, then the court of women for Jewish women, then the court of Israel for Jewish men, and then you get by the court of the priests. Millions of people would pilgrimage there every year. It was the one place on earth for God's people and it was the one place on earth for outsiders to explore faith in the true God. Now yes, they could maybe go to synagogue, maybe they had some Jewish neighbors, but this was to be the place for people to learn about the true God. But here's the problem. The rabbis of Jesus' day had influenced its construction in a lot of significant ways, and it was very segregated, and the purpose for which it was created could not take place. Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles. It's the outermost court. On the stone ledge of the court of the Gentiles, before you went into the court of women, it said this, any Gentile going beyond this court will be executed. That's a direct quote written right in the stone ledge. In other words, this isn't for you. The court of women was as close as a Gentile could get to the edge of the court of women. And women could go into the court of women along with Jewish men, but the women couldn't get any closer. What was perhaps worst was this. The 30-acre high run that had the court of the Gentiles in it split the city of Jerusalem east to west. It's a big area. 30 acres is a, is a huge area. It split the city. So a road was built through the temple area, through the court of the Gentiles for commerce. So even the place where an outsider was supposed to be able to come to learn about the true God, it's a bazaar. It's a road. It's commerce. It's animals walking through. It's people walking through. So much for the outsider. Well, and unfortunately, it wasn't much better for many of the insiders, many of the believers, many of the Jewish people. As Jesus came into the court of Gentiles, he also saw the money changers. Now, Jews had to pay an annual temple tax. Most came from other countries. This was a pilgrimage. They came with their foreign currencies. Foreign currencies were forbidden because they often had emblems and images of false gods. So you couldn't take that into the temple and give that. They needed to be exchanged. And many suggest that the exchange rate was fraudulent. But most importantly, and what torqued Jesus was, this was all set up in the court of the Gentiles. Then he saw those who sold sacrifices also in the court of the Gentiles. Pilgrimages required a sacrifice. For the sacrifice of the poor were two doves. They could be purchased in any town in Israel problem, they had to pass temple inspection. Sacrifices had to be without spot or blemish because they looked forward to a savior who would be without spot or blemish. They were symbolic. But somehow doves brought in from the outside, from other towns, just didn't pass kosher inspection. But the temple system run by the high priest had pre-approved doves at 15 to 20 times the price. This was God's house. It was to be a place for the seeking heart. 
It was to be a place where all people could come to know God. The king of heaven and earth is in front of the nation offering himself as their Messiah and the system which should be his platform to let the whole world know who he is is broken and in ruins and exclusive. And because of that, the sacrifice of the Son of God would be wasted compared to what could have been. And God was furious. And he took control of his house. And with a whip, according to one gospel writer, he chased out the businesses, the money changers, the dove sellers. He's flipping tables. Doves' cages are breaking. They're flying free. Coins are rolling across the floors. And he shut down the road carrying commerce from east to west in that city. And he turned the court of the Gentiles into a hospital with a 100% healing success rate as he performed miracles that day. On the way home, the disciples saw the fig tree. The fig tree that Jesus had cursed just hours before. And within less than a day, he just said, may nobody eat ever, ever eat fruit from you again. The fig tree is not just fruitless, it's dead, withered in a day. And they took note of it. It was a metaphor for Israel's religious system. There's also a teaching lesson. Jesus said he made it into actually a little statement about prayer. If you believe, you can do great things as well. But, but it wasn't an angry fit. Mark takes the story and wraps it around the cleansing the temple. Curses the fig tree, curses the religious system basically. Fig tree's dead. It was a metaphor for the religious system. The religious system had the appearance of fruit. Temple was a busy place. It looked like everything was really working the way it was supposed to, but it was actually fruitless because of its exclusive nature. And insiders and outsiders alike could not come to know God the way God intended them to. Well, how do we apply this? Well, the first couple applications are very simple. The obvious ones. Jesus is the path to God according to Jesus. Palm Sunday was a key statement by Jesus about Jesus. He claimed his identity that day in a public way, specifically that he was the Messiah, but throughout the rest of that week that he was God in the flesh. It is a truth claim we either accept or reject. It's what makes us Christian or not. Second, the church is the new bridge. Just before this and around this time, Jesus actually makes some statements to the religious leaders of the nation and he says that this kingdom will be taken away from you and given to another who will bear its fruits. It was a prophecy that Israel as the light to the world at that point in history was being set aside for the church which would be not a nation but people called out from all nations who would acknowledge Jesus as son of God. That would be what would unite us. He's already been predicting this. He said to his apostles, I'm gonna build the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom. In other words, the church will be the one who carries the truth of God to the world. But that's where this gets interesting. That's where the more critical questions arise from this passage. 
How's the church doing at that? Last I heard, uh, now this is, a, this is a, probably a south of the border statistic. The average church had one convert annually. I want you to think about that. Now there are ch- churches south of the border, you know, many, many churches, mega churches, thousands and so on. So think about it. The average church has one convert. And when you think that most of the people coming to faith are probably coming to faith in those very large organizations, that means there's a, hundreds of thousands of churches that basically just aren't reaching people that are outside of their pews. Thousands of churches close annually in the U.S. and Canada. Thousands of churches are born at the same time. And what I want to talk about in our remaining time is what differentiates, and you're going to have to forgive me, the winners from the losers. And I'm not going to let you do the Sunday school answer and say God. Because in my opinion, it's not God. God's for the church. God's not making churches fail. God is for the church. He's for its success. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when churches are closing, we're not going to say it's God. So the question I want to begin with on this, we're going to park here until we close, is who is the church really for? Who is the church for? How you answer that question will tell me everything about the culture that you would create if you were in charge of the church. Who would you try to attract? What music would you use to attract those people? What level do you want the sermon preached at so that you can reach the broadest audience? What age group do you believe is most important that the church reaches in order to survive for the next three or 400 years? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You want to know Jesus' view on this? It's here in this passage. The church isn't for insiders, just like the temple wasn't to be just for insiders. You say, well, okay, Paul. That's okay, Paul. We're not saying people can't come here and and be a part of the church. I mean, as long as they do it on our terms with the kind of stuff we like. I mean, everyone's welcome, right? I'm gonna stop you there, and by the time we're done, you're not gonna like me. I'm just telling you that now. There'll be a cross with some wood under it and some gasoline out in the back for the afterwards. The Apostle Paul on this issue, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, you know what he said to the church? He said, we got this whole miracle thing going on in the early church. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. There's all kinds of miracles. People are speaking in other languages in order to do missionary work with people from other countries. I mean, it's happening all over around Jerusalem. It's starting to spread. It was called speaking in tongues. He said in 1 Corinthians, you know, if you have people coming into your church who don't know Jesus and you're doing this kind of stuff, they're gonna think you're nuts. He said, well, it doesn't say nuts. No, it says mad. That's what he actually said, if that helps. He said, because the church always has to be a place for the outsider, if you start doing things that make the outsider really uncomfortable and they can't understand, you're not going to be effective as a church. In the first century, the apostles are saying, be careful how you act in church because outsiders are intended to be there. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, Paul talks about a little bit more of his philosophy or his theology around church growth, and he says, you know what? We're gonna be all things to all people. If people are under the law and they're Jewish, they're under the Old Testament covenant, I'm gonna figure out how to, how to give the message about Jesus to them in language they understand. If they're people who are outside of the law, they're Gentiles, they don't respect the Old Testament because they don't get it, then we're gonna give them sermons that talk about sort of things from their perspective. And we're gonna be all things to all people. And he wasn't saying compromise anything. He was saying we keep adapting and moving and changing so we can reach people at their level on their terms. The church was to be adaptable. Interesting part of this is Paul's theology about circumcision. You know, one of the great debates in the early church, which you just can't make this stuff up. I just love this, it's so funny. The debate was, when Gentile converts came to faith, do they have to be circumcised? Because Gentile men weren't circumcised back then. It wasn't something that happened in the hospital. It only happened in the synagogue for little Jewish boys. So the great debate was, do Gentile men have to become circumcised in order to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? Because the kingdom was Jewish until the New Testament. And so Paul is just arguing, of course not. We've seen God's spirit poured out upon the Gentiles. They're not circumcised. Clearly God favors them coming into this great family. And so in Romans, Paul talks about it. But before that, in Acts 15, you see the big debate. Paul's at the Jerusalem Council. You know, it's the big sort of early Christian church council where he's standing up for, of course we don't have to circumcise Gentile men. That's foolish and backward. That's Acts 15. Acts 16, verse three. There's this young preacher named Timothy. He's a good guy. He's got a Jewish mom, he's got a Gentile dad. Dad's views ruled when Timothy was born, he wasn't circumcised. Paul says, Timothy, we're gonna go on a little trip, but we're going to Jewish territory, so buddy, I need you to take one for the team. Just, just a little bit, just a little off the end. I'm asking you to be circumcised so that we can reach a group of people that need Jesus. And Timothy, what do you think his reaction was? Well, number one, a little behind the scenes information that you're not gonna find in your text, and many things happen that way here at Bethany, I know. You know, some say that Paul's thorn in the flesh, his, the impediment to effectiveness in ministry he talked about might have been his eyesight. I think Timothy's thinking, Paul, if I get circumcised, you're not going to be the one doing it. I want Dr. Luke. But Paul is saying anything for the spread of the gospel, buddy. Timothy can sit at ease for two verses after Paul's speech about circumcision. Acts chapter 16, verse 3, after Paul said nobody should have to be circumcised. These Gentiles aren't Jews. Of course they don't need to be. Timothy gets to rest for two verses before Paul's asking him to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Would you agree it was a value to adapt and change and move in any way possible to rescue people from a Christless eternity? Can we agree on that? Well, then that's what the church needs to be. It's one of our values. Cultural relevance. We believe that changing our methods without compromising our message is essential as we bring timeless truths to each new generation. The church always has to adapt and change. All right, so let's just think through the last 40 years of history in the American church, the Canadian church, the Western church, the European church. 
What music style do we choose and why? Well, I know some of you would love to have a music style that I personally wouldn't care for. And the answer to why you would love that would be because it's what you like. The question is not what do you like or what do I like. The question is what do we need to do to reach next generations and people who don't go to church? That's the kind of music style churches need to have. You say, well, Paul, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, Paul seems to indicate you do anything you can for the gospel. And I don't come to church to just get everything I like. It's not about me. It's kind of about me a little bit, but it's about the people who aren't here. It's the ministries we choose. We just had a meeting the other night because we're thinking about starting Awana again, which is one of the best programs for children that I've ever been a part of. And used to have... All of you who clapped just volunteered. <laughs> Where I came from, we had our, our Wednesday night Awana program. The parking lot was dangerous. Hundreds and hundreds of children with their neighbors learning scripture. And we used to have it here at Bethany, and we stopped. There are people going to the Awana website looking for churches that have Awana to send their children to. And they have to drive out of Southwest Calgary to other parts of Calgary to find it. Parents who would come here, drop off their kids, and then visit on Sunday thinking, well, this church, I, I guess we're comfortable with the building, looks like an okay place, they care about Awana, why don't we check this out? When I came here, our concern was, let's get young families in the building, so we need to do the programming that does exactly that so that every generation is reached. There's a reason that Dee Dee and I are on the two ends of the spectrum. Grandparents and a new small group in our home, young couples, newly married or seriously dating, because that's the future. And you go after the people who are not yet here because the church of Jesus Christ is responsible to create and pave the way for every new generation to know him and follow him. And it's the building. What does the building look like? I've been in your homes. They're lovely. I've also been in the women's restroom over there with a decorator, nothing creepy. It's not lovely. Oh, we don't want to spend money at church on the building. Oh, that's just, that's just worldly. The women's restroom should be an illustration of the value of cultural relevance. Women should visit Bethany, walk in that room and say, wow, I don't even feel like I should use it. Wow. Why do we care about those things? Not because we want to spend money on the building, but because we care about the people who are going to visit us, who are used to one of the most professional communities in Canada, who work downtown in beautiful buildings, who have good jobs, and come into a church that doesn't look at all like the standard they have in their own homes. And you say, well, that shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter to you, but it does to them. It's who we stage. It's who we stage on a Sunday morning. You say, well, is that intentional? Well, it, it did kind of just happen. But when you look up here, what do you see? You see a bunch of people who are 35 to 45 with young kids. I'm not saying it was that intentional. I'm not saying we can't have old people on the stage. I'm kind of old. I always lie about my age. I'm actually 59. Now you've heard it. But if everyone on stage looked like me, 
nobody would come to church here. It'd be scary. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Who's on stage and what that looks like makes, is a message to people. Oh, there's people here like me. Oh, there's people here with families and children. It's a message. It's a cultural message. It's not about who's here. It's about who we want here. And we are in the middle of a cultural remake at Bethany. And it's going to continue. And some of these things you'll agree with, some of them you won't. I hope you agree. If you don't, send your emails to Aaron Mackey at BethanyChapel.com. But we're going to continue that cultural remake because it is about the people we want here as we rebuild Bethany. Because the church is for us and them. And we shape the culture for them. As I pray, uh, we're going to have the worship team come back up and, and also our prayer team. And if you have a prayer need for yourself or a friend, we'd love to have you take advantage of that time, come and be prayed for uh, as we close the service. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful, not just in what we believe, but faithful to the kinds of practices kinds of values and attitudes that were reflected by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul as they recognized that the institution they leave on this earth to reach people has to be the kind of institution that people want to come to in order to find God. And we play a pivotal role in creating that. Help us to do that as a part of our faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.